Hey team, it's Jordan here from NZ Audio Editors. I just wanted to say that this episode doesn't actually reference COVID-19 because it was done well ahead of time. But I hope that uh, for even for an hour or so, the content that we provide does in fact take your mind away from it. And we also hope that your families are safe, you're safe, and everybody remains that way. So best wishes from NZ Audio Editors. One plan for retirement. Take care of yourselves. Talk soon. This podcast is proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web. Greg Moyle and Ryan Melton from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. This is not to be seen as personal advice as it is a podcast, but will give you the tools you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. Thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast that Ryan and I have been talking and and putting together with the assistance of our good friend Jordan from Audio... NZ Audio Editors. Yeah, NZ Audio Editors. Ryan's really the one who's been the driving force behind this and uh, he's the new person coming into the financial planning business and uh, I think has an exciting future ahead of him and has learned a lot in a short period of time to the extent that uh, he's written his first book. Yeah. Talking about uh, some of the issues confronting people as they go through the financial planning process. A good, compelling read. Yeah. Uh, I read it over a a couple of sessions and uh, thought there's some quite thought-provoking things there. And a lot of it is around behavioural issues. We can all learn the, 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 the rules, if you like, the various things and disciplines that we have to do to be financially independent, that's spend less than what you earn and, and have a plan in place and use the eighth wonder of the world, compounding mm. returns, uh, to ensure that the money grows as opposed to stagnating or going backwards. But at the end of the day, it's the habits that you develop over a lifetime that will have a huge effect on the outcomes that you will achieve. Uh, planning is part of the process, but the discipline of following through, you don't want it to be like a New Year's resolution. Mm. <laughs> we all, we're all going to lose weight. We're all going to get fitter. We're not going to spend money on things that we want but don't need. Um, but it doesn't happen, does it? Not quite, no. Ryan's also asked me to mention about the noise in the background. We, we're in Federal Street in Auckland Central, and uh, in Federal Street, the new city mission is taking place behind us so that the poor homeless people don't have to sleep in the street. They'll sleep in, uh, I don't know, four-star accommodation. and Buffet. Be, you know, be fed decently, and uh, if things don't turn out well for us, we might have to join them. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose it means if people come to see me here in, in the city centre or see Ryan and they're not prepared to take our advice and 
you know, that we can push them across the road. Dramatic and effect. And say, well, look, this is what happens when you don't <laughs> oh, that could work. plan for your retirement <laughs> and you haven't uh, <laughs> made the appropriate arrangements. You might end Brutal. up having to uh, join the line at the food counter. Yeah, enough, and yeah. It's, um, it's, a, it's a great safety net. I mean, the City of Mission do fantastic work. And but, um, you know, if people follow the, the various financial disciplines that we talk about uh, they shouldn't have to be there they should be able to be uh, resilient and independent a subject of course that many of the people who are at the city mission are sadly affected by other issues whether it's alcoholism yeah. or mental mental health issues so that's something we can't necessarily help people with mm. we're the financial doctors not the the medical doctors for sure and that I've actually I've actually walked along Queen Street and had a chat with a few of the homeless people and yeah there there are significant stories like one young lady, um, obviously she would have been beautiful in her time and, but then obviously alcohol abuse she lost her teeth and she talked about how she was abused as a young young woman um, by her stepdad and then the mother didn't believe her and she's gone off on her own so these it's easy to have a blanket sort of viewpoint of people not understanding that the situation helped craft who they are. And that's a big part of why I actually wrote the book is really about just the frustration that not everyone knows what I now know thanks to you and my studies, and they should. And I think a big part of that is the inaccessibility in terms of jargon. People have a glazed over look when you start talking about it. So that's why we pivot a lot about the goals and what the money enables you to do. So that, that, that yeah, it's a big problem. And I'm glad they're getting support. But in the same sense, when you, when you give a handout to a person, there's a fine line between um, singling them out and giving them this money and making them feel as though they aren't capable of doing it themselves. It's sort of it's sort of the cycle. Like my um my uncle, he's a, a detective sergeant, and a lot of what he does is he goes to beneficiaries' homes, and and and, and there is certain issues in domestic violence, or there's a cycle where there's um, a lineage of people on beneficiaries. So you got to think as well as one. Sure, we want to help them. And and that's what that's our intent, but the delivery which we're doing it might not be the best way to help them. Well, the problem I think that and it goes back to the the biblical parable of uh, if you give a person a fish, you feed them for a, a day. Mm. But if you teach them how to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. Mm. And I think in our society we're getting hung up on. Increasing benefits, you know. Keep hearing on, on on the TV and the radio that you know if we only increase the benefits that are paid out to people less fortunate and within our society, things will be fine. Mm. And I don't believe that. I think that what you need to do is to give people hope and give them the skills that they can find their own place in the world because. The person who earns a lot of money is not necessarily as happy or happier than the person who earns a lot less. Sure. Because we set our own particular, uh, how would I call it, not really goals, but we say, this is what makes me happy. Mm. And for some people, it's a certain amount of money will allow them to do all the things they want to do and, and give them a sense of purpose and a sense of achievement. But for other people, they need a lot more. Mm. Uh, it, 
my father taught me one of the things, many things he taught me, that in everything you do in life, if you can get a sense of accomplishment, uh, you'll get a level of satisfaction and you feel good about yourself. It's all about self-worth mm. and it links into resilience, but you can get that from doing a menial job like vacuuming the carpet. Yeah. Right. If, you, if you say, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it well and you do it, and you look back and say, oh, it's great. You can feel a sense of accomplishment or achievement of that. Uh, for people who undertake a course of study, I always feel a little sad for those who don't complete the course. And I know in accounting, there used to be one paper that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back. It was called auditing. And there's a whole lot of people who did accounting but never passed that one paper auditing <laughs> and therefore never qualified. Yeah. And, of course, what they come away with is a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. When I know auditing was not easy and it was a bit repetitive and boring, but, you know, if you break all these things down, uh, they're achievable. You just, you know, put a little bit more effort in and you, you never give up. You know, it's that sense of um, determination, you've got the resilience, you're going to achieve uh, no matter what obstacles you put in place or are put in place for you. You don't. You probably do put them, but there's sometimes other people help along the way. One of the things I noticed when I was teaching, uh, as I did, I taught accounting on a part-time basis at Auckland University for in excess of 20 years, and I really enjoyed teaching mature students because these were people who often told they weren't good enough or confident mm -hmm. enough to go to university to do a degree. And they were coming back later in life and doing one of the more difficult subjects, uh, one of the more uh, less exciting subjects, if you think accounting's not particularly exciting. To me, I look at it a little bit differently because accounting opens up a whole world of information about how businesses work, how money works. And, uh, you, know, you know, to a certain extent, the saying that money makes the world go round is actually true because mm. money does actually give people choices to do the things they want to do when they want to do them. But with these mature students, you know, it was amazing the results that they would achieve. They were getting A's when they would have been written off as yeah. younger people as mm. not being bright enough or mm. smart enough to achieve. The reason they were getting A's is they were doing what they wanted to do. You know, they had a sense of purpose and providing I as a teacher could communicate to them in a meaningful way because that was one of the, the challenges because not everyone understands things in the same way. So you have to vary your yeah, teaching skills or sure. your communication skills till you see that the light goes on. And I suppose that's a little bit about what we do with financial planning. When we're sitting down with someone and listening to what it is that they want to achieve out of life, looking at what resources they've got to do it, and you're giving them a, a, a scenario where they can achieve those arrangements, and it involves, because these are financial matters, involves spending less than what they earn, saving in a cost-effective way, accumulating and protecting capital 
to give them the ability when they stop paid employment that their money will work for them as opposed to them working for the money. That is to say that they can uh, use the income and growth from their investment to fund or cash flow their retirement lifestyle. Mm, the financial gap. And that's a, there's an interesting study they did with um, with teachers and students where what they would do is there's certain students that weren't performing well and they were trying to demonstrate the effect that expectation has on a student's performance. So what they did is the students, they completed the tests and then the, the obviously the people doing the study would tell the teacher that certain students did really well. So then what happened is because the, the expectation of the teacher's improved and thought that that student's going to do well then that student actually did well so the influence a teacher can have on a child is huge like you talk about someone that even in their 50s or 60s heard from a teacher that you'll never amount to something or you'll never be intelligent you won't be able to do this it has a huge flow on effect and as you say these students coming in they're more than capable of being able to do that um and which sort of flows in when you talk about resilience is is how to go through the good times and the bad and it'd be interesting over the 30 years, like your experience when it comes to the ups and downs in the market and significant ones that you've remembered, is there, is there certain points where there were significant uh, downturns and what you did to deal with it and also how you recognized that what was the best way to go forward with the investment strategy? There have been. I mean, it was interesting over that period of time. So I started in mid to late 1987 and of course in October 1987 there was a stock market crash and a lot of people lost a lot of money. I was able to say that none of my clients lost money in the October 87 crash Mm. principally because I didn't have any clients at that stage. (laughs) I just started a month or two before but just to make it quite difficult to encourage to try and encourage people to invest in the share market. No. Because that was like saying, well, why not I just throw myself off a cliff? It'd be easier. And I was like, no, you've got to understand, you know, that there are different asset classes. They carry with them different returns and different risks. And the share market is about investing in businesses. And you expect people in business to get a better return than the landlord of the property they're renting. And the landlord would expect to get a better return than the bank that they're borrowing the money from. And it just flows through. It's risk and return and understanding how different classes of assets uh, operate. But the problem with the share market crash of 87 is people were just speculating. It was not looking at the fundamentals of the company to look at and see if this company is well-managed, well-run, has a proper business plan, has a sustainable uh, future. Uh, And we can all think of businesses that didn't have a sustainable Mm. future. One of the ones that comes to mind uh, is the American company Kodak, which would have been one of the biggest companies in the world that no longer exists because it was all based on um, the technology of the time uh, using um, film and cameras to uh, photograph and develop an image and it missed the digital revolution. Mm. So it's not there anymore. So similarly, when you invest in shares, you've got to look at the fact you're investing, you're investing in a business that you don't generally run 
because it's listed on a share market, it's a publicly listed company, and it either has a future or it doesn't, and it will go through its own cycles, which is why you then learn uh, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You buy uh, across the market as opposed to buying one or two individual shares. If you buy one or two individual shares, you're not investing, you're speculating. Mm. And learning to differentiate between speculation, um, which might make you rich or poor, uh, is different from investment, which is calculated to make you financially independent. You're not going to get rich by having a balanced portfolio, a balanced investment strategy, but you certainly will ensure that you're not broke, Mm. that you're not poor. So 87 was quite an interesting uh, period of time because there were lots of behavioural issues that were around there. People would say, there was no point going to work because I'm making more money at this dinner party than I have over eight hours in the office Mm. because they could just see the shares go up and up and up and up. And they did till they went down, 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 out the back door. Yeah. Because people didn't understand what they were investing in. There were some bizarre stories about, a, a, you know, for example, a bloke in the South Island uh, was at the Times with the corporate fraud unit of the Justice Department prior to this and had to deal with the registration of prospectuses. And one was effectively almost written on the back of an envelope by a bloke who thought to be a good business in uh, possum furs. And he wrote this prospectus and you you could uh, put it out there and people thought, wonderful idea, and threw all their money at it. Mm. Of course, lost everything. Mm. It was just bizarre that people were investing in um, all sorts of fly-by-night type operations. Great ideas, but just had no sustainability. And that's where you learn that you make money by not losing it. So how do you avoid losing money? You diversify, not only against different asset classes, cash, bonds, property and equities, shares, um, but within those sectors you also diversify by uh, across the market. In fact, you know, with some days, these days, with index funds, you're actually buying the market. Yeah, huge. And that way you're reducing the downside risk if things go wrong. And things will, from time to time, go wrong. So 87 was an example of that, uh, where the market's just got out of kilter. Uh, we've seen repeats of that. I mean, the, the next big... Uh, an arrangement like that was probably for me uh, after 87 and 94 we had what we call the bond market crash Mm. where people didn't necessarily do anything wrong Uh, they were sensibly invested but what happened was that fixed interest investments which would have been seen as very secure and safe suddenly dropped in value because interest rates increased. Effectively, the uh, Federal Reserve Bank in in America increased their official cash rate from, I think it was from 3% to 6%. They would have done that for lots of reasons. Maybe they were trying to... um, avoid a, you know, an inflationary spiral yeah, yeah. with you know, lower interest rates. I mean, people were borrowing or speculating, so push up interest rates to slow the economy down. Um, what they precipitated was the bond market crash where 
these fixed interest investments lost a lot of money yeah, and people sense. panicked right. because they didn't expect that to happen and it caused a, a good six-month drop within the markets till sanity prevailed and <laughs> off we went away. But there were a few casualties. Yeah, A few be. institutions kind of fell by the wayside. Then the next one that came up, if I remember correctly, was closer to 1999. Um, there was a uh, Asian market sort of um, mini crash, a bit of a bubble had formed and people had speculated in the Asian markets and suddenly the, the bubble got pricked and valuations became more realistic and people saw markets drop. And, that, and what happens is the undisciplined or ill-advised client will panic when markets drop because they are not diversified, they are speculating, they don't have anyone to hold their hand and say, look, things are fine, just don't don't uh, throw the baby up with the bathwater and don't join the lemmings as they jump off the cliff because that's what you want to avoid. You don't want to go with the herd instinct. Mm. You almost want to be a bit counter-cyclical a little bit. Uh, when should you buy? Well, when things are cheaply priced as opposed to when they're more expensively yeah. priced. It's common sense. Mm. Um, but it's hard to get people to buy when the markets are down. Yeah. Because they just think they're going to continue to go down. It's easy to get them to buy when the markets are high because they think it's, again, this behavioural issue that markets are going to continue to go up. And they won't. At some stage, there will be an equilibrium. There'll be some sort of balancing. After the '99, um, we of course went into that period with of 2000, and of course everyone thought with the 2000, the change in centuries, that was going to cause all sorts of other problems. Uh, Y2K, yeah, Y2K, and you know all the computers <laughs> would go down, and it's crazy. You know, there was all sorts of stories. And again, if you panicked, you missed out. If you thought like Chicken Little that the sky was going to fall in, um, for you it would. Mm. Uh, if you had a good advice and said, look, you've got a diversified portfolio with these things as winners and losers, you're not trying to pick the winners uh, and avoid the losers because you're not going to know till after the event. But if you n- go through a proper process and the companies that you are investing in uh, and using managed funds, you've got professional management and they will be looking at are these companies well-governed, well-managed, have uh, got the right formula uh, to protect themselves against the downturn but also benefit from the upturn, you'll be fine. Mm. You know, you think about uh, if you were investing in a company that supplies a commodity that everyone uses every day, uh, that means, of course, that you will... um, Sorry about that, the phone just went off. I'll get rid of it. Um, You answered it. (laughs) <laughs> then I tried to get rid of it. That's uh, the problem. You know, when it's ringing your ears, you can't can't help. But just to go back, is that when everyone else is kind of losing the plot, and you, you know, are confident that you've got the right balance within your investment strategy, that you've got the right investment uh, funds in place, that they're, if they're managed funds, that they're You've got the right companies that make up that managed fund to to cover that part of the market, you'll be fine. After Y2K, 
we ran into an issue between 2000 and 2003 when the international markets around the world did not perform, which there was effectively a global recession, not a depression, but a recession. Uh, effectively, there was a lack of confidence in what was happening in the financial markets. Of course, it got spooked a little bit in 2001 with 9-11. Mm. The markets dived, but then recovered quite quickly. Prior to that, they were kind of fribulating. They weren't just going anywhere. Uh, people were getting a, um, a, a zero or negative performance over a, a, a you know, period like a year, and that kind of spooked people a little bit. And 9-11 came along, the markets stopped significantly, but then recovered and think people, oh, it's all fine. And then we ran into 2003, and you may or may not remember, but there were a couple of major companies uh, that basically went to the WorldCom and Enron mm. uh, because their valuations were wrong, and people had bought, on the basis of hot air, the... Um, Popular man today. The... You know, the you know, reality um, happened, and as a consequence, the um, people who panicked lost a lot of money. Mm. And, you know, that's, and that's what happens. You know, when when you panic and you sell, um, it's a it's a buyer's market, and you're not going to get the price that you wanted. It also led to the collapse of Arthur Anderson, one of the largest accounting firms, one of the top eight. It was, as an accountant, unbelievable for me to even conceive that Arthur Anderson would fail. But it did. Mm. And that changed the nature of the accounting services where you had uh, a separation between auditing and consulting and basic accounting. A lot of firms had to rejig their arrangement. But... In 2004, the market suddenly recovered. And if you had done, as some advisors had got their clients to do, which is to sell at the bottom, convert to cash, you miss the upswing, Yeah, as you will always do. And that's the beauty of the balanced portfolio, that irrespective of what the market serves, you're covering your bases and... You try and minimise your losses and you allow your gains to take you steadily forward. So from 2004 to 2008, the market was just going one way up. And then in 2008, 2009, another cycle hit. Mm. In the US, it was all about the no documentation, no security loans mm. that would be done by fringe financial institutions. Some of them were actually pretty big names. Yeah. And you know, it was the Leeming Brothers uh, company that was the first to go to the wall, and that just precipitated a huge market sell-off. And in the US and Europe... Um, Countries like Iceland and Ireland and Spain really got dealt to because people were speculating in real estate um, on um, sort of kind of easy money that just disappeared. And um, the banks in particular and then the economies had to swallow a lot of debt. Mm. And it took a long time for that to recover. In New Zealand, we missed that 
but walked straight into the finance company debacle where people not being satisfied with 7% in the bank. Just imagine that, 7%. They'd be quite happy now. Yeah. They're getting 25 uh, 7%, they thought, oh, we could do better and we'll go to Bridge Corp or Hanover mm. or Capital Investment, some of these finances, finance companies that had grown up uh, around helping to fund the housing boom that was going on at the time. Uh, the development boom, and suddenly we discovered that the emperor was wearing no clothes, that <laughs> these companies were borrowing money from the public, um, then on lending to developers. Uh, there was no interest being paid. It was just all being um, accumulated, if you like, uh, compounded with the debt, and it would all be repaid uh, when the development got sold. But in the meantime, the finance companies were borrowing money to pay the interest of the money they'd already borrowed. They'd invented some ratings. They got a rating company to say they were all doing really well. Um, people like me they were saying, well, I don't really understand how these people are going to be paying 9% or 10% uh, and say that the risk is no more than the bank because that just doesn't make sense. Mm. I didn't understand what they were really doing until suddenly you know, the, the, the emperor was discovered to be naked. Mm. And you could then see that while these companies were saying they were profitable, it was all on paper. Mm. And that the, the mums and dads who had put money into this, uh, these arrangements, sometimes on advice, uh, mostly because they just were mesmerised by the returns that they were receiving. And you mentioned in your book, I got a letter from Bridgecorp saying to me that if I put my client's funds, which would have been about $100 million at those days, into their fund at nine and a half percent interest, I would get a commission, mm -hmm. which would have amounted to I think something like three percent yeah. uh, for twenty six months. Very and good. I'm going, well, that sounds good. I'd be a millionaire. Um, fortunately, I put my interests of my clients between before the interests of myself, as any good advisor would, and just threw it in the bin. Uh, that would have been disastrous for my clients and disastrous mm. for me as well. I wouldn't yeah. be able to go out during the hours of daylight. No. Because I would have lost people who were, you know, risk averse, uh, relatively con conservative, um, their life savings. But see, people who were risk averse and conservative were giving their money to Bridge Corp to get the 9.5% without understanding mm. the risk they were taking. And there's an old saying, isn't it? If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And that was the, that's the issue. Mm. So there was a good learning curve during that period of time. Uh, there'll be people who will never recover from that because they put their life savings into finance companies. Some people, I saw one particular person who came to us after the event had sold a, a rental property that was going to fund their retirement lifestyle uh, into a group, I think it was Capital and Merchant, and it was 100% loss. Yeah, wow. So they were now dependent on New Zealand Super mm -hmm. without really any means to recover. Because these are people who had come to the end of their working life and put their life savings. I mean, that's terrible. Horrible. So people like myself and Ryan, as you come into the business and other good financial advisors out there, have been able to protect their clients by ensuring they have 
balanced investment arrangements, which with all these disasters over time, we've we've ridden the storm. Mm. On top of the waves, we're going up and down, up and down, but we're still afloat. And when the markets recover, you recover as well. And by rebalancing back to your investment strategy, you protect your capital base against the next you know, market calamity, whatever that might be. And none of us know what it would be um, or when it will happen, but markets correct from time to time. But over that 30-odd year period, uh, having a balanced portfolio, not having all your eggs in one basket, using managed funds to buy quality uh, investments, you know, like quality companies, quality bonds, quality property arrangements, have meant that um, when the market's doing well, the clients do well, and when the markets go through this period of um, um, doom and gloom, mm. um, we don't have to panic. Yeah, you know, We can ride out the storm. If people need the cash flow, they can still access the money from their portfolios. They don't have to crystallise a loss. And that's this thing about making money but not losing. For sure. This is the most curious aspect of this industry where we all sort of agree there's no such thing as a fortune teller, but there appears to be in this industry where many people claim to be, where they know when the next economic crash is, they know exactly the returns you get, they know what, how to invest your money, where to put it. And that's just this curious thing where um, there was a financial journalist, he did a speech that I went to and he talked about how if you have a client that has concerns about what's coming around the corner, what you should do is you should get clippings from what all the economic economists have predicted over the last 30 years and then the f- subsequent returns that have followed. And there's no consistent winner because you can't read the future. So that's what it's about, having that diversity so that when the winds are coming, you ha- you're in a position where you capture it. When the losses are there, you're in a position where you have a rigid diversity so that you can sustain through it and actually make the most of the lower cost or underpriced assets. So... I hope people got value from that. And when you do read the next doom and gloom in the paper to realize they don't really know. So just position yourself in a balanced portfolio, ride out the storm, and you'll be living the life you want. I think that's the thing, isn't it? You don't, you don't want to be carried up in the in the hype. You know, yeah. The, you know, the, um, it's kind of like a lynch mob. Mm. You know, you're sucked into it and, and you're almost compelled to... Um, to just go with the flow and you go, no, take a counter-cyclical view and say, I'm not going to be one of the lemmings that leap off the cliff. If I've got confidence in my advisor, I've got confidence in the process, I understand how markets work, I've invested my money in quality organisations, quality companies, I've not gone to um, the sort of debt that we saw in the 80s that really, you know... They, they used to call them things like uh, collateral debt obligations, which is a fancy mm. work of saying uh, this is a loan you've made to someone who's giving no security, mm. no guarantees. Uh, you've invested in a hope and a prayer, and you know, if you get your money back, you'd be very lucky. Yeah. And in fact, you didn't. So whereas if you go uh, into established markets, understanding where your money is invested and what the risks are, and that the return will flow with the risk. So you're not going to get a high return from a low-risk investment. 
You know, and that's the thing. See, people often say, you know, I want high returns with no risk. Mm. I don't know where you get that. No. You certainly don't get it at the racetrack, and you're not <laughs> going to get it anywhere else either. No. But if you understand what your needs are going forward, what sort of return you need to capture to fund the lifestyle you want when you cease paid employment, and we talk there about real returns, um, and project that forward, you can see whether or not you're going to have a successful retirement lifestyle or not. So will plan A work, or do you have to go to plan B? Mm. And maybe you do have to go to plan B. You do have to free up some equity in your home or to sell off some assets, but you do it in a programmed way that ensures that you are able to do all the things you want to do with the resources you've got. And going back to our constant theme, that you're not going to run out of money before you run out of life. And on that note, thank you for listening and continue continue subscribing as we, we, we share you share these journeys and making sure that you do not run out of money before you run out of life. Thank you. <laughs>